my three experts, gurus, as you were. Joe Twyman is here, co-founder and director of the polling company Delta Poll. Hi, Joe. Hello. How are you? I'm having a lovely time. Thank I bet you. you really are having a lovely time. It's been quiet, really, since 2016. Well, really, 2014. I mean, that, that's where the well, uh, that's course. where the craziness began, and uh, and it may be the end may be in sight. It may not be. Ah, but then, of course, as I was speaking to someone um, this week. Uh, the polls suggest it could be anything from a Conservative majority to a hung parliament. Well, a Conservative landslide yes. to a hung parliament. Uh, <laughs> the, the thing to remember is that polls have a margin of error associated with them and how that plays out in individual constituencies, many of which are very close, could make a huge difference to the end result. So of the 650, there are about, I've been led to believe, between 80 and 90 that are marginals? Uh, yes, depending on, how you, uh, depending on how you count it. On the data that was released yesterday, there are 85 where it's estimated the margin of victory is 5% or less. So that's, that's perfectly doable for, uh, for any party, even at, this, uh, even at this stage. And 85 seats could make the world of difference. Now, the previous election, they basically divided up as you would expect. But if they all lean one way or they all lean the other, that could have a large impact. And uh, Anand Menon is with us as well. Anand, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you doing? A professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London and uh, spent the last three years trying to persuade people you are an independent voice <laughs> and it's so hard to be in the middle. We know, we're at the BBC. <laughs> Trying I've seen indeed. your Twitter feed. <laughs> it's been quite lively, hasn't it, over the last three years? There's been some action, yeah. There's been right some life. action. Bronwyn Maddox joins us as well, director of the independent think tank, the Institute for Government. Bronwyn, independent. There yep, you go. We, we are independent. No, we're fiercely independent and we're, we're counting down to see what the result is. How hard is it to persuade people that you are independent? Because it seems like there is a certain group of people on all sides who, as long as you are agreeing with them, they feel that you're independent. I think that's exactly right. And then if you criticise them, they feel you've suddenly gone over to the other side. So we judge it, certainly. And I don't mean this entirely uh, jokingly. We judge it by whether we've uh, ruffled feathers on both sides. Right, OK. So if you're getting uh, flack from everyone, yeah. you're doing the right that's thing. That's exactly what yeah. we do. Essentially, yeah. Welcome to and, and actually, that hasn't been hard. No, <laughs> it hasn't. There's been, a, there's been quite a lot to uh, poke holes in on both sides. So it's, then again... It's always checking your own biases, isn't it? It's always making sure that whatever happens is supported by the data and the data will prove what you're trying to say. By data, it's by evidence, and it's by talking to a lot of people right around the country. We spend a lot of time going around the country, I back recently from Northern Ireland, just to make sure that we're just hearing a lot of different takes on things. Because government affects people's lives in very, very different ways, and the perspective on it is very different. But just going back to what Joe said, it's absolutely incredible that we're coming up to this election, and so the, the range of what is possible is still so wide, mm. and what the parties are offering is still so very, very different. There really is a battle of ideas. OK, let's get into some questions then. Our reporter Nick Garnett has been out and about in the northwest and spoke to people in Bolton about what election issues they're still unsure about. Morning, everybody! Come forward, find a little bit of space. So we're going to start off with some slow squats. Nice, straight posture. to the north of Bolton has seen its fair share of change over the years. In the Industrial Revolution, it was a mill town, then came the railways, but since 1997, the town's probably best known for being home to Bolton Wanderers. So politically, it's an interesting place too. It's part of the Bolton West constituency, which is one of those seats that could go either way. The Tories held it in 2017, 
but Labour want it now. The Conservatives won it by 936 votes. A similarly thin majority voted to leave Europe in the referendum. So, I'm at a parent and baby fitness class next door to Bolton's ground with Rihanna. What's your biggest concern? I've got a little boy, young family, so obviously it's his future. I'm self-employed, I run my own business, so things like, you know, how, how will my you know maternity benefits be affected? What one question do you just not know the answer to that you'd like the politicians to, to actually be, be honest and tell you about? Childcare is a really important issue, and I would imagine for a lot of the ladies here today that it, you know they would share the same concerns as me you know of, of, of how future childcare will be affected there you go that's the question Bronwyn let's start with you on that then and the manifestos and future childcare well actually all three of the main parties have said quite a bit about childcare they've all rushed to put their promises out there and the Conservatives have said a billion more for childcare and after school care they haven't said how that's going to be spent and that's probably eclipsed by both Labour and, and definitely the Lib Dems Labour said 30 hours a week of, of free childcare for two, three, four year olds and the Lib Dems I think have gone to 35 hours a week but um, a lot of the details Details in all of those cases, I think you have to say, really to be spelled out how that would be delivered. Because one of the things about this election that's been great, kind of um, fire hoses of money and promises turned on things, but actually how is that going to be done? To me, the uh, was if, if, if you had very young children at, at this point, part of the interest of this election is the pledges, really quite energetic pledges about um, more money for uh, schools, uh, more money uh, to, to try and stop teachers leaving the profession, which has been a big concern, and indeed more for further education as you get a bit further on from the uh, the young children we were hearing. But that really is could be quite significant. That is, that, that is a real emphasis, change of emphasis in the Conservatives' case. Um, so there's definitely a focus on education in this thing, and they're not so far apart on this particular issue. But would you say out the, the three manifestos of the three main parties, um, and then of course the fourth, the SNP in uh, in Scotland, is that some have put more detail than others? I mean, yep. my my sense is from what you've just said is that the Conservatives have talked money, uh, but not necessarily detail. Yes, the Conservatives talk. I think that's exactly right. The Conservatives have talked more money than detail, and. Labour's talked, for example, more detail, like um, Universal Sure Start Plus um, for under two-year-olds. Um, so a lot of detail about the programmes, but less about the money. The problem is, is that with their manifestos, both the Conservative and the Labour um, manifestos, and we talked about this yesterday, the Institute of Fiscal Studies said that neither of their manifestos add up. Yes, though the Labour one adds up less, if you can put it that way. Right, okay. <laughs> now, the right. Conservatives are pledging an extra three billion a year in public spending, which is not uh, an, an awful lot, uh, though that's on top of a tw 20 billion coming the NHS's way, thanks to Theresa May's last last gesture. Um, but Labour's talking about an 83 billion a year uh, increase, and that's before getting to the uh, 50 something billion it's, it's promising for, for uh, women pensioners. So an, uh, that's an um, altogether different scale of money and I think that's really what people have been questioning of where exactly is that going to come from and can it come without raising taxes beyond what Labour has suggested. Professor Menon. I mean it's interesting isn't it because in a sense both parties are sort of learning the lessons of the last election that is to say Labour thought that their big ambitious manifesto got people to like Jeremy Corbyn whereas the Tories thought having ideas and having saying too much might be dangerous remember 
the uh, social care proposals into Mr. Theresa May's uh, manifesto. It became the dementia tax. Yeah, and it, it just strikes me that actually there's not an awful... I mean, the, the Tory manifesto doesn't look like a plan for five years in government. It is a very, very cautious document in that regard. Apart from the one word, Brexit. Apart that, from that, Brexit, that, yeah. that is their big idea, yeah. and no. if you like, and, that, and, and, and then the rest, the rest is a kind of uh, icing around that, yeah, if you like. absolutely. In most cases, of course, the average person in the street and the 50% of people less engaged than the average person in the street is not paying attention to the detail. And so instead, when it comes to an issue like childcare, they will think to themselves, OK, well, who do, I, who do I trust most? Which party do I think will do best for me on the issue and, uh, and do best for my, uh, best for my child? And, uh, and with something like this, it, it's not clear which party wins out because of the similarities in, uh, uh, in their approach and the fact that when it comes to an issue like this, there's not a much, uh, there's not much in terms of a difference of trust. But I, I guess the party that has the most detail is the one that you can make the most of decision over because the more detail you've got clearly it informs you to make a better decision. But most people aren't paying attention to the detail. Oh. Instead, they're taking their uh, they're taking their cues from uh, from the leaders and from the spokespeople for the parties, and they're deciding from that from the cumulative effect, not just discussions on childcare, but discussions on Brexit, discussions on health, and discussions on everything. Whether the broad questions of will this party be best for me. That's the kind of uh, that's the kind of calculation there. I think there's a real question about detail as well. I mean, the Labour manifesto is much, much longer than the Conservative one. Lots and lots more detail, and they clearly have spent a great deal of time writing about it. To, and uh, and uh, and yet uh, the question is: Is it credible? Can they pay for it? And can they actually deliver? That can they even spend that amount of money? So, I mean, there's there's an interesting thing in this that you provide lots of detail that people are not going to read, or you don't give much detail and people say well there's not much detail in this or you don't give much detail because you're scared um, that you may not be able to what justify you hope, what it. What you hope is it adds to the momentum in favour of your party and so that's why manifestos are useful because they provide an opportunity for a moment in the sunshine of publicity. And it's also shaped, I think, by perceptions of the party. Labour's problem has, in the polls has been a problem of people not thinking that they're going to be competent in government, not that they don't like their ideas. So that might explain why Labour went out of their way to put a lot of detail in to try and persuade people that actually not only do we have good ideas... We've thought about but it. But we've thought it through. Right, OK. So this is um, kind of psychometric testing of the electorate and then saying, OK, this is the information that's coming back to us and we have to uh, shape our manifestos accordingly. So then in, in that respect, what has shaped the Conservative manifesto to be less on detail? To well, the fact that they're trying to get Brexit done in their famous slogan. And so that... And they think that's the one thing that will um, relate to voters more than anything else? Well, uh, to, at least to some voters, and I don't think they're wrong on that. And obviously they've got the withdrawal agreement that they've, they've put in front of Parliament. So, that you know, it, wait, that's part of their manifesto. But then, as we've just been discussing, I think they were burned by the experience two years ago where one or two things that they really thought were very sensible, and indeed many independent allies might think in the end are going to come to pass, um, blew up on them. They're hoping to not scare the horses with their manifesto. Mm. That, right. I mean, that that's the whole thing. Get Brexit done while not scaring anyone. Right, and that is, as Bronwyn pointed out, pretty much just making them shudder because of what happened two years ago. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, this question from David in Worcestershire. Hi there, Nihal. Hi, panel. I'm feeling forgotten about in Worcestershire. I'm recently married, recently a new homeowner, and I've got no children. I'm also self-employed. I set my company up five years ago. Um, 
And I'm curious, with all the parties talking about what they're going to do for workers' rights, being self-employed, I don't really have any. If I don't work, I don't earn. And also for families, so things like free child places will never really apply to me. Unless, of course, you can transfer them across to dog sitters. I don't know if that's the case. Um, so I guess the question that I'm asking is, what about people like me? That's Thank a- you open question David what about people like him uh, a guy who clearly is going to be you know comfortable enough to as he points out not be using the education system for his kids so privately educating his kids well I'm really sorry he's, he's feeling forgotten about oh, I, I don't I don't think he actually is uh, because um, when you get on to things that haven't really um, been as noisy in this this campaign, uh, like uh, pensions and like the tax system, they've certainly been there, but they're not front of stage. Um, he would find himself, I think, um, certainly, certainly both parties are arguing for his vote, but the Conservatives have said uh, they're not going to raise the main three taxes at all, have made a big pledge about that, and have, uh, in fact, all three main parties... Uh, including the Lib Dems, have said that they'll keep the the triple lock on pensions. So that might not be right what's on top of his mind at the moment, but a bit down the road he would be extremely well looked after by all three main parties. Okay, Uh, just some clarification there. I read it as as he will never have kids who will use the education system. Um, I thought, sorry, he meant the private education system. He's just not going to have kids. It's going to be a childless couple. So there you go. David from Worcester, thank you for that. Right, let's move on uh, and let's go to our reporter Stephen Chittenden who's been speaking to people in the London borough of Kensington. We're on Ladbrook Grove in Kensington, which is the tightest seat in England. It is the most marginal constituency. Just 20 votes separated Labour from the second-place Tories at the last election. It's also a place of great income inequality, with multi-million pound mansions nestling right next to social housing. Grenfell Tower is in this constituency. Uh, Let's have a word with Dorothy McKenzie. So, Dorothy, what is the biggest issue for you? Housing. Well, for the um, younger younger lot growing up now, they're not going to be able to get rehoused easy. Um, it's just hard. It's Kensington and Chelsea. <laughs> Rich and poor living by next to each other. Younger ones growing up now who are going to be leaving home are going to find it hard to get rehoused. Um, my son is living with my mum, so obviously when she passes, he'll probably be all right for that but the others not going to be so easy so have you got a question how can younger people living in this constituency ever hope to get rehoused place of their own yeah that is hard housing i mean we've already done this as part of our election clinic and lots of promises from people but this person asking you know how can younger people living in this constituency hope to get rehoused in a place of their own who is offering that who is offering because there just there isn't the housing stock is there i think that's exactly right there there isn't and she's speaking dorothy speaking from um what i think is the most densely or along with westminster the most uh, the second most densely um built uh, borough in in london so and when grenfell happened the council which i think has now spent pretty well all its surplus on it's also the wealthiest borough in the country isn't it I think, that, I think that's also right. And yeah. it had a big surplus in its yeah. Conservative Control Council. And I think the council's now spent that uh, surplus on trying to rehouse just the Grenfell people and people uh, uh, affected by Grenfell is trying to improve social housing, but there isn't an awful lot of room. So I think, you know, she's absolutely 
right that there is um, the real problem in terms of the manifestos. The Conservatives have promised to build lots more houses, um, haven't said quite as much about social housing. It's where Labour, I think, does distinguish itself and it said, look, we want to build an awful lot more social housing. Neither of them has said an awful lot about building it in Kensington because um, there isn't an awful lot of room there. No. But, but the, the pledges are clear and I think what I find encouraging about all three main parties' manifestos is that they really recognise that the housing uh, situation in Britain is broken and that lots of different decisions go into fixing that, one of which is is building more social housing. Sure. What this illustrates is the difference that we've seen in uh, in generations uh, that, has, uh, that has played out through British politics over the last few elections. You have a generation who, generally speaking, were able to buy their own house and have benefited in some cases quite substantially from the growth in house prices over the last few decades. You then have another generation that has not been able to get onto the housing ladder as a result of that. Now, in the old days, you would assume that, uh, that as people got older, their likelihood of getting onto the ladder increased, and, and so as a result, their, their, uh, the way they viewed these things might change. But if people are never going to get onto the housing ladder and are always going to be able to look at this inequality, uh, that could have very profound impacts on the way that they then view politics. If no one is able to sufficiently address this feeling and perception of inequality, then that has huge implications. Professor? I mean, this, and this speaks to something that none of the parties really address in their manifestos, which is this issue of wealth inequality rather than income inequality. So it's not about getting paid differential amounts, it's about primarily the house you own and it being a massive asset and prices going up meaning young people can't afford to buy those homes. Now, economists and think tanks are discussing wealth inequality and ways to deal with it which might involve property taxes and things like that. It's very interesting to note that none of the three big parties I'm, go there. I'm really surprised that this hasn't featured much more in the manifestos and in the election. I thought from the build-up to it and the way that parties, particularly mm. Labour, was talking, that this was going to be centre stage. It really hasn't been. You're absolutely but right. But that would no, be, a, that no would be an own goal for the Conservatives. No one it? wants to alienate older voters. That, right. That's the thing. Uh, so, yeah, uh, or, or homeowners, uh, homeowners generally. And and that that still is a is a big contingent, particularly for the Conservatives, where they draw a lot of their support. And so some form of property tax, I imagine, could have had the same sort of negative backfiring effects as the dementia tax that we discussed in 2017. But I guess if you were a conservative um, politician, to talk about wealth inequality would just buy into the hands of the Labour Party, who would, of course, ally that to austerity. But you could talk about generational inequality, I think, and strike a chord with younger people without um, casting that completely as a, an attempt to raid the wealth of, 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 of older generations. Mm. And of course the housing crisis is predates austerity by, by decades. That's what I was going to say. This is, I mean, for those of us that have lived in London for the last couple of decades, this has been around for, for some time, but now this is, has spread to a lot of the country and crucially, people are getting older. And so whereas they might have been happy to rent in their 20s, by the time they get to their 30s and they think about having children, suddenly the insecurity surrounding some people renting, it's just not good enough for them. And so they look at their parents and perhaps their grandparents but more commonly, they look at other people who are of the generation above and think, well, how is it that that person has a £2 million house when they were only ever earning the amount of money that I was earning? I was going to say, one of the striking things about this election is the way that Boris Johnson has campaigned 
as if he is separate from the Tory governments that went before. So in that sense, he says, well, I will invest, I will invest. And Labour have tried to make the line stick, but hang on, you've been part of this government that's been in power for nine years and done austerity. And to this, to date, I think he's actually managed remarkably well to separate himself from that legacy. He's presented himself as the change candidate and in enough ways yeah. that seems to have uh, clicked. Mm. Uh, because, of course, giant infrastructure spending isn't something you'd normally associate with a Conservative government. It? And it's not a very sexy policy generally. I mean, people people generally don't go out onto the stump and say, what do we want? Massive levels of investment in infrastructure. When do we want it? On a very reasonable timescale. <laughs> people don't really use the word infrastructure, apart from politicians and, no. and civil servants, I've found. But, no. um, and and uh, Road, the other thing about it is that people don't like big things being built next to them, but they do want the, ben- the benefit of, of them. So it can. it's a double-edged sword for politicians, I think. So, so looking across the manifestos, there is nobody who is directly addressing wealth inequality in this country in a specific way. No, I think they've been in flight from it, really. It, apart from talking about more money um, into areas away from the southeast, um, there they, they have. So they've talked about regional inequality, if you like, um, Conservatives and Labour, but they haven't gone for this generational point. And they've really run shy of the point that, uh, as we were discussing, blew up on the Conservatives in 2017 about whether people are going to have to use some of the wealth in their houses for their own care as they get older. And personally, to give you my personal view, I think it's inevitable to an extent. Um, uh, And that's how some of the redistribution will eventually happen. Uh, We haven't yet talked about health and and how to pay for all that, but um, uh, money's going to have to come from somewhere. This is one of the... People's elders care. Sorry, I was just going to say this this is one of a number of really big questions that face not just our country, but all developed democracies. How do you pay for an ageing population? How do you pay for increased automation in manufacturing? How do you deal with globalisation? How do you deal with climate change? And these really big questions have been sort of pushed to one side while we've been discussing Brexit. But if Brexit is truly, and it's debatable, to be done, then these questions will have to be dealt with because they're not going away. They're bigger than Brexit. Oh, absolutely. They're bigger, they're bigger than anything that we have faced since the Industrial Revolution. It makes Brexit look like a distraction. Right, OK, well... Almost mm. a deliberate distraction. <laughs> OK, well, we shall move on to that statement. 33 Sorry, minutes, 33 <laughs> minutes past one. Uh, let's take a break for the news headlines. Keep your questions coming in to us, um, 85058. This is the last day of our election clinic so if you want clarification on any topic if there are questions that you have please do get them to us text 85058 or give us a call on 08085909693 nick hatfield is here with the news on digital bbc sounds smart speaker and online this is bbc radio 5 live it's the last day of campaigning for party leaders who are out across the country trying to persuade voters in marginal seats to back them. Jeremy Corbyn says a vote for Labour is a vote for hope, while Boris Johnson says only a Tory majority can deliver Brexit. There's increased seismic activity on New Zealand's White Island, meaning rescuers can't try to find the nine people who are missing presumed dead. Six are known to have died following Monday's volcanic eruption and 30 others are in hospital with burns. The number of murders this year in London has already passed 2018's total and is the highest for more than a decade. Latest figures from Scotland Yard show that 142 people were killed in suspicious circumstances. And Greta Thunberg has been named Time magazine's Person of the Year. 
The teenage climate campaigner is at a conference in Madrid where she's accused governments and big business of failing to tackle the issue. Dilith Lloyd has the sport. Thank you, Nick. The former British Paralympian Vicky Agar is close to resigning from WADA's athlete committee. It comes in protest at the decision by the WADA executive committee to ignore demands from a majority of her committee to hit Russia with a complete blanket ban. With more on this, here's our sports correspondent, Alex Capstick. As well as considering her role at WADA, Vicky Agar and fellow members of the committee will examine the possibility of requesting the strongest possible punishment at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Meanwhile, Russia, which has been accused of carrying out one of the biggest anti-doping frauds in history, is expected to appeal against the sanction, which says the country can't be officially represented at all major global sports competitions for the next four years. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has condemned the alleged racist abuse that two of his Manchester United players suffered in the Manchester derby at the weekend. Midfielders Fred and Jesse Lingard were subjected to alleged racism during their 2-1 win at the Etihad Stadium. A 41-year-old man was arrested on Sunday in connection with the allegations before being bailed pending further investigation. Solskjaer, though, was today asked how both Fred and Lingard are. Yeah, we've spoken with the boys, of course, and I think they're uh, the same as me, that we... This isn't how it should be in football, but what we can do is go out onto the pitch next time and prove what we're doing is football and we're all, all equal in that respect. Oh, it's been a tough couple of days, I'm sure, for, uh, for Jesse and Fred, and, but um, we just have to help the, the other people as well to, to understand the, their behaviour is important. United play AZ Alkmaar in the Europa League tomorrow. The Football Association of Wales could lose money at Euro 2020 after being drawn to play fixtures in Azerbaijan. That's according to its chief executive, Jonathan Ford. The tournament will take place in 12 cities across Europe, with Wales facing Switzerland and Turkey in Baku in Azerbaijan before taking on Italy in Rome. Ford has called the costs astronomical. Petitions to wind up Championship Club Birmingham and League Two club Oldham have been dismissed by the High Court. HMRC had put forward the cases for unpaid tax, but the debts have been paid. Big rugby news today. New Zealand have appointed Ian Foster as their new head coach. He succeeds the very successful Steve Hansen, who left the post at the end of the Rugby World Cup. Foster served as Hansen's assistant for eight years. Our rugby correspondent Chris Jones explains the decision. In reality, this was always Foster's job to lose. But given the All Blacks' recent World Cup ended in the semi-finals, can he freshen up the setup and step out of Steve Hansen's shadow, especially with the charismatic Scott Robertson offering an intriguing alternative? With South Africa as world champions, England looking to kick on as well, Foster will be charged with wrestling that balance of power back to the All Blacks. Pakistan's bowlers dominated day one against Sri Lanka as Test cricket returned to the country following a 10-year absence. Sri Lanka, who were the visitors when a terrorist attack led to the suspension of all international cricket in Pakistan, closed the day on 202 for five. And ahead of England's tour of South Africa this month, Cricket South Africa have appointed Graham Smith as acting director of cricket. That's the latest from BBC Sport. The best live sport. Europe's elite club competition. The Champions League. Later on tonight, Bayern Munich versus Spurs. Kickoffs at 8 pm. This is your football station. This is Five Live. Across the UK. This is BBC Five Live. Nahal Arthanayaka.
Hello. More importantly, of course, though, my election clinic is open for business. I have Joe Twyman with us, who's co-founder and director of the polling company Delta Poll. Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon. Professor Anand Menon is with us, who is Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London. Good afternoon, Professor Menon. (laughs) And Bronwyn Maddox joins us, who's director of the independent think tank, the Institute for Government. So, no spin, no hyperbole, no... Um, massaging of figures, all experts, all facts, just what you need in order to be able to make your decision, which is taking place in about 33 hours' time as you head to the polls for tomorrow's general election. Okay, let us get on with the questions. Uh, This one, shall we say, is uh, from our reporter James Shaw. He's in one of the tightest marginals in the country. I'm in the Crown Tavern in Lanark. Now, this is in the... Lanark and Hamilton East constituency, which is a stretch of land southeast of Glasgow, small towns, country areas as well. What's really interesting about this constituency is that it's the tightest three-way marginal in the whole country. So the SNP won last time, but the Conservatives were close and so were Labour. So it could go one of three ways in 2019. Yeah, hello there. Um, my name is Ian Hughes. I'm the president of Lanark Rugby Club. Uh, my question would be about needing, um, I'm a young father and we've got a fabulous youth section at the rugby club called the Lanark Eagles and we've got a lot of great families. I would just like some form of security to know that the NHS is going to be safe for my children and the, the families I engage with on a regular basis. So there you go, there's a question about the NHS. Interestingly enough, a GP once said to me that... Um, it feels like you're in a kind of abusive relationship as a, a as someone who works in the National Health Service because pretty much people are having a go at you for four or five years and then an election comes around and then everyone, all these politicians stand up queuing up to tell you how much they love you. And it's a kind of weird, it's kind of like being gaslit uh, by, uh, by politicians. So um, this gentleman, he just wants to know, you know, really, who's going to be looking after the NHS the best? And that's, of course... A value judgment, but in terms of the manifestos, what are they promising, Bronwyn? They're all promising to look after the NHS, and I think you could. Um, you and know, definitely could, not sell it off to the Americans. And definitely not, um, though they've all, you know skated over uh, at least the Conservatives. How much I mean, uh, private contribution there actually is to the NHS services. How many, how many things are bought in at the moment? Um, but um, I think what we've seen in this is a real commitment from all parties saying, okay, it's what people want. We're going to put money behind the NHS. And the future of the NHS really is a a political decision in the best sense of that word. It's about what do the people of the UK want? All right, they want money into this, then it will go into that. The question is what happens down the road. Um, And when kids who are small now, you know, grow up and are are older, because we are dealing with an ageing population and things get more expensive. And um, so on some extrapolations of this, uh, we could end up with a giant health service with, if you like, a tiny country attached to that. The numbers are, the, are that big. On the other hand, if you're going to be more positive, you say, look, people are getting smarter about these trade-offs and where they want to. At the moment, they do want a lot of money there, but they're alert to these kind of conversations. And kind of parts of medicine are getting much, much better. Um, there have been a lot of improvements in cancer care. I'm not making light of the, the pressures on NHS wards and the uh, way that people are leaving the profession and the strains on them. Those things are real. And, and politicians' money is will go some way to solving those uh, and at least maintain standards. We've done a lot of analysis saying the money pledged um, 
won't really improve standards, but enough to maintain them. Labour's money would go a bit further to improving things, but you can hold it steady. But meanwhile, some medicine is getting a lot better, and I think we should look at the positive as well. Professor Menon. Well, I just, I just wanted to emphasise what, what Bronwyn just said, is, you know, there are enormous pressures on the NHS, and which linked to an ageing population and the fact that costs are rising uh, of treatments. And the way we do the NHS in elections, which is, you know, every four or five years, everyone comes along and says more money, just means that we never have that fundamental structural debate about do we need to think about what we will be able to afford, not in four years' time, but in ten years' time maybe, and do we need to start planning accordingly? And and again, Nick, none of the parties... Didn't Nick Clegg really... try to do that when he was in coalition to talk about social care? Yeah. And bring I mean, that into the, the heart same, of the conversation? I think exactly the same thing is true of social care, and we have tried a couple of times, Nick Clegg, as you said, and also uh, with Theresa May, but we saw what happened on both occasions, was that ultimately it was something that our politics... It was just too big for our politics to sort of swallow in a way, that sort of debate. Is there any sense, Joe, that it's a vote winner to say, pay more tax and it will pay for your NHS. Uh, well, <laughs> the data on this is complicated. Uh, what a lot of people want is the NHS to be run better, but they don't really have a good idea of what that means in terms of the detail. And so they don't want to pay more tax for it, but they do want more money to be spent on it, and they want that money to be spent better. Now, of course, that's not a particularly helpful position if you're a, a politician to uh, uh, to try and deal with that, but that is what, uh, what the public think. However, if you're going to spend extra money on something, and if you're going to collect extra tax to pay for that, the health service and education usually come top of the list of priorities. Right, OK, because the Lib Dems in 2017 said 1p, and that will go to the NHS, but it didn't really work out for them electorally. Well, it? well, again, that it's because it's not all about the policies and it's certainly not about the details. And the Lib Dems have a long history of adding 1p on for, uh, well, previously it was for education, then it was for health service. Uh, it never has made much of a uh, much of a difference to uh, to them and it's not going to be the deciding, uh, deciding point. I think the danger of not addressing this question of where the money is coming from is that other things they get squeezed and people never address that either so local government's been squeezed enormously so have parts of the criminal justice system the courts and, and prisons and so on and those because politicians don't love to talk about them as much in a, in a general election uh, those don't get this um, uh, fire hose of money at a, a election time um, and but the, the result is that an awful lot of things you know get get squeezed there and that really affects people's lives so there is a flip side but at the moment, I think NHS and education have, have come out well out of this election. Mm. But the money that's been pledged, as you pointed out, would really only just keep it going as it is. Yes, because costs have been, and demand for it has been going up so much. I mean, if you take a sort of longer view, demand for health services and the cost of them has been going up about 4% a year at least, and the economy growing at about half that moment, it's not really growing at all. And so something has to give. Uh, either you have to raise more money or something else has to be has to be squeezed. And Britain is long overdue a conversation about what people want to pay for health and uh, and public services in general. But I think what has come clearly out of this election, uh, not just through politicians uh, competing with each other, but through people saying what they want, is that people in, in, in Britain really put the NHS very, very high in their list of, of, of desires for the country. It's the most important issue when you ask people what's the most important issue facing you and your family, and that's been true throughout the campaign. And in the most recent polls, it's pulled level with Brexit in terms of the most important issue facing the country. It really is the closest we have to a secular religion. Yes, in this, yes, that's been pointed out by... Um, so then, um, the money that is needed for it, um, people are promising it at every election. Um, 
But what about telling us how we should change our lives to make sure we don't put so much stress and strain on the National Health Service in the future? Because the fact is, uh, or certainly what I've read, and please tell me if I'm wrong, is, is that we're living longer, but we're living with the same ailments. We're just living longer with those ailments. So, for instance, I mean, look at diabetes numbers, for instance, going up. Now, not all diabetes is down to lifestyle, but a lot of it is, can be explained away by diet, etc. Are any of the parties asking us to say, well, what more can you do that's not financial, but it's about you changing your lifestyle? Ask not what the NHS can do for you, <laughs> ask <laughs> what, what you can do for the NHS. Well put. Thank you for putting that succinctly. That's exactly what I was getting at. Is anyone doing that? Not so you can hear it. Uh, you can see how it's not. It wouldn't not be desperately popular for politicians to get up on the stuff and say, you know, drink less Coke, now vote for me. Um, but, but I this think. This is part of what. It, look, is, it, it is part of what you would call. Um, sensible? Sensible, joined up yeah. government. And uh, we certainly feel that one of the things that's been squeezed in the, in the recent years is, is a lot of attention. It's attention as much as money on prevention in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Bronwyn's absolutely, absolutely right about this. It, it's, it's about preventative medicine, and that's an area where the NHS has actually never really been particularly good because there's never really been much money spent in that area. It's always been about treating the most urgent uh, most urgent cases, which, which, of course, you would want. Of course. But there is the argument, particularly, as we've talked about on a host of subjects, with an ageing population, how you address that. I mean, the only area where it's specifically mentioned that I can think of in the manifesto is, is labour and dental care and the argument was explicitly that we will take we will reduce i think it's reduce or scrap the cost of uh, a dental visit once a year and the aim was to prevent people having being admitted to hospital if they had serious problems that had, could have been particularly children up turning yeah. up in hospital yeah. having to have um teeth removed and so yeah. on it's one thing that seems to be coming through here and speaking to all three of you is that um and please excuse the naivety of this statement, but there's a lot of short-termism here and the actual structural issues that this country faces isn't getting enough attention. I think... I think That's been true forever, hasn't <laughs> <laughs> it? I suppose you could make the point, if you look at things like but the impact of artificial forever, intelligence then why are we climate... As a, sorry, Professor, but if it's been true forever, why we as an electorate just accept that? Why it's very clever people such as yourselves, uh, no one gets the message through that actually if you want to govern this country, you have to be thinking beyond the election cycle. And I know they make pledges for 2030, etc., but then we look at that and go, well, you, may, you won't be in government then. You, that's four or five, whatever, three elections. It could be 10 elections away the way we're going at the moment. But, you know... I don't know. To me, there's more about the longer term than you might expect and, and might have seen in, in, in recent um, elections. You, really? Uh, yes. Um, so um, the Conservatives are stuck by their twin, uh, carbon neutral in, in 2050. And that sounds a very long way off, but it was a really very short time to make a big... A, bit, a big plan for that. There is more about well, roads. There's more about... Not ambitious enough, the Greens would answer. Uh, 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 well, it's not. <laughs> this is where there really isn't enough detail. In fact, I'm not sure there's any at this point right. of how to get there. Um, but more more about um, further education and skills and what what um, people might want um, to educate themselves throughout their lives. There's, there's a lot more thinking about that. But what I'm very struck by in this election campaign is there's a lot of discussion, as we've been having today, about public services and so on. There's actually much less about some of the big structural differences between what the parties are saying. I mean, Labour is really talking a lot about nationalisation and ownership and really reorganising the economy. This is very abstract stuff um, for election purposes. On the other hand, um, 
I don't think they mean it in an abstract way. I think they, they're plenty serious about mm-hmm. it. And the Conservatives really have a very, very different vision of what government is. And so to me, what part of the interest is, even though you've had this uh, extraordinary uh, similarity in, in both of um, the main parties going all out to turn money on the public services, some of the bigger ways in which they are divided uh, on that and on Brexit have not come through really that clearly in this, this, mm. this campaign. Uh, Michael Gallagher in Belfast sent us this question. What do the main parties propose to do to stem the decline of the high street in so many UK towns and cities? Hmm. Who would like to say everyone's looking at Bromwell? Well, Professor Menon. The the Conservatives before the election had launched their towns fund uh, and had targeted a certain number of towns, cynics would say, targeted a number of towns that might eventually vote Conservative. So this had been going on before. I think all the parties are talking about regional inequalities now. You have the regional investment we bank. We have the worst Labour. in Europe, don't we? We have regional disparities in terms of wealth. The scale of disparity is is huge in yeah. this country for such a relatively small country, absolutely. But it is something that uh, all the parties are now talking about and saying that they want to address in different ways uh, via essentially public spending. Right, okay. What, redistributing away from London and the South East? Yeah, having specific pots for sort of, I mean, northern towns have been the focus, uh, but for places outside of the South East. From a public opinion point of view, this is going to be really important in the next couple of years when the issues around Brexit are discussed and in some ways move on, but we'll have to see exactly in which, uh, in which way, because... We know that uh, from the from the data, we know that a lot of people voted for Brexit not just because of a dislike of the uh, of the European Union, but because of a general dissatisfaction, disapproval, and distrust of the political class generally. And part of that is about things like the shops on their high street closing. Now, if as a result of Brexit they see no changes in their high street, they see no changes in their circumstances. The implications then are enormous for who those people. Uh, for how those people then respond. Because some people are hoping that Brexit, in whatever form it takes, will mean that the high street opens back up. And I think the political parties, no matter who gets into government, really have to address that. Except that uh, shops are shutting largely because of online sh- shopping, or an awful lot of them. No, and, uh, and that's a trend that is not going to change. And that is the yeah. difficult position that the parties are now in, that they have promised that change will come and that, uh, and that uh, the situation will improve. But people aren't going to stop shopping online when it's in many well, that's, cases, that's, more convenient. I think that's a, a, a very interesting question indeed. What if it doesn't pan out as you expected it to afterwards? I mean, that's a very interesting question indeed. OK, we need to move on because we've got about six minutes left. Pete is on the line. Hello, Pete. Yeah, good afternoon. Pete is in Bradford. Uh, you've got a question. What is your question, Pete? Yeah, I was just wondering, uh, what's going to be the uh, annual interest payments um, for uh, the Labour and the Tory uh, borrowing um, spending plan, sorry. Wow. Okay. I mean, because accusations of people spending so much and so much, etc. I mean, I think that's quite a difficult calculation to come up with right now, isn't it, Bromley? Yeah, but what would the interest be? But I, I guess the, 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 the world's going to borrow out the but yes, which is, which is which is fair enough. But what's going to be the um, What's going to be the effect on the taxpayer on the on their borrowing? I think it, the borrowing would be higher under Labour. Um, the Conservatives are making a plan, uh, a commitment to reduce the deficit, so the, the annual um, amount the government spends 
more than it uh, gets in. Uh, and so adds to debt. They're, they're making a, a commitment to get, to get rid of that, though that point has moved further away. Labour's plans, uh, undeniably, um, are more ambitious on that, and we just don't know. Uh, to me, the, how so, do they justify that? Well, they, ju- they justify it by some of the things they want to do, uh, saying that nationalisation will pay for itself yes, and so on, and, and that yeah. it will produce more growth. That's their big idea. That that the things that they will spend the money on will get the country get productivity up and the country growing faster that's proved really elusive for an awful lot of politicians and i must say i'm i'm, I'm skeptical but that is their argument and i'm sorry well i was going to say the other thing that uh, labor would say is that borrowing costs are very low at the moment so actually if there is a moment to borrow this is it right okay um pete why is this question of importance yeah. to you I, I don't know well I, I consider myself as just a, a normal working man and if i if I want to buy something, obviously, if it's if it's more than I can afford at my uh, at my savings, etc., you go to the bank or, or some financial institution and you uh, ask to borrow the money. Um, and I know how much interest I am going to be paying on the amount of money that I want to borrow. So I can either I either know if I can afford to pay it back or not. If I can't afford to pay it back, I don't borrow it. Mm. So. But do, but do you base your borrowing on what you might earn in the future? Because that's essentially what Bronwyn is arguing the Labour government is doing. It's saying, well, we're going to borrow this money, but we are planning. These are our plans, and this is how it would pan out, that it, it would it would level out, I guess, because of increases in production. Um, yeah, but, but I don't know. I just, I just, I just think all part is... Um, well, they'll all have know. to borrow, won't they? I mean, they'll all have to oh, borrow. Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. But I think uh, I think the guys at, at Labour they're they're going to borrow quite a lot, and I think the Tories are going to borrow uh, less. And my question is, just what what would the be the interest payments uh, be annually based on based on what they want okay. to spend the money on? You know, so it's, it's know? okay. So Pete, thank you very much indeed, Pete from Bradford. So. I guess, look, we're not really going to ask you to come up with a number of the interest payments, but what effect does that have on an economy paying the interest on the money that you're borrowing in order to do all the things that you... Well, it squeezes out other money that the, that the country might spend on public services or other things it, it wants to do. Now, as Anand's saying, I mean, while interest rates are low, that's not... Um, uh, it can be quite a containable... Uh, proposition. And they've the been low is, for some time, haven't they, they? They have been. The question is whether something happened in Britain or whether the, the, um, that whether the markets got so spooked that interest rates, uh, the price at which the world was prepared to lend Britain, the British government money, suddenly, suddenly went higher up. Um, this photo has a question about defence. My name's Danielle. I'm 25. <laughs> I've got a little six-month-old boy. So because my husband's in the Navy, I'm worried about defence and um, what's going to happen in the future, whether gonna, the government's going to support the defence. Um, he works um, for submarines, so obviously that's like nuclear, all the trident things and things like that. So defence, um, whether the government will support defence. So... Um, firstly, Joe, Joe is, is defence, where does this rank in people's... It's not parties? top of mind, but for some, it's one of those issues that for some people, such as the, uh, the person asking the question, it's very, very important. Of course. But for most people, it's not on their top one or two lists of, uh, of priorities. OK. Professor Menon, where, where are the parties at, do you think, in this, in spending on defence? Well, I think I'm right in saying that both parties have pledged to maintain our commitment to NATO of spending 2% of GDP. This is the Labour and Conservatives, yeah. yeah. Uh, 
and both of them are committed to maintaining our nuclear deterrent force. So what they do with that 2% of GDP within that broad envelope is not clear. The Prime Minister has said if he, become, if he is returned as Prime Minister, he's going to have a major strategic defence review immediately, and that will decide on the particular spending priorities. But the, the, the overall envelope of defence spending will remain above that 2% of GDP level. Proman. I think that uh, Labour said it would have a re review as well. Um, and Labour said, while it is committed to the uh, Trident nuclear deterrent, uh, the Prime Minister, uh, the potential Prime Minister, Jeremy Corbyn, has not said that he would um, actually use it, um, which has provoked an awful lot of questions about what the point of having it would then be. I think there are real questions about how that money does get spent. The army is shrinking and the recruitment of, of reservists and others has proved really quite difficult. Um, the Navy has been saying for years, as, as um, probably in Danielle's mind as she was asking a question, uh, of um, that it really doesn't have enough um, ships and, and, and repair capacity to go, to go round. And so part of the answer is going to be how Britain works with other countries to use what it has got. And that's um, going to be all to play for after after Brexit. OK, well, you can see a full list of all the candidates standing in each seat on the BBC website. And my thanks to the panel today, Joe Twyman, co-founder and director of the polling company Deltapol, Professor Anand Menon from King's College London, and Bronwyn Maddox, director of the independent think tank, the Institute for Government. Thank